I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzone. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny. I'm an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined once again by Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. We've been out of pocket hey. for a couple of weeks. We had a skip week last week because you were in Kansas City, Columbia, and St. Louis, so it's good to be back. How are you doing? Hey, friend. I'm doing great. It's really nice to see you. Being on the road again now after such a long stretch away, I feel like I don't have my my sea legs quite yet. There's a certain discipline that is enforced on you, partly by my age, which I'm not as young as when I started doing this a decade ago. You know, if you don't get a good night's sleep, if you don't eat well, if you don't do a little bit of exercise, if you uh, stay out late with everybody at every place you go, you wind up just like not doing well. And that week I was in Kansas City, we started out so nicely. Like you and I uh, went to the World War One Museum, which was astounding. Uh, we had a great event. We stayed out a little <laughs> late. And I feel like like the week just compounded on me. So by the end of the week, I'm just like limping through the airport going, I have to go to, I have to go home. <laughs> yeah, that day was a very long day, which by the way, I learned a lot at the museum. I have recommended it to several people now. It seems like a lot of people don't do tourism things in their own city. So a lot of people that I talked to haven't been to that museum. Jeez. So I'm trying to get more people there. Did you learn a lot because of the museum or because of the know-it-all who wouldn't shut up? That was <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, so when we were in the museum, you were like explaining the exhibit. And I noticed that other people would kind no. of hover around us and like listen. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking the museum just ought to hire you to talk about World War One. Who is this pompous man? I have probably read more books on World War One than any other topic except for a couple. Yeah, I feel like I could teach a course in World War I because it is it is the most fascinating of, yeah. You definitely could. And yeah. by the way, <laughs> you were wearing a suit. So people probably thought that you were oh, like funny. a tour guide like at this museum. So yeah. that's funny. I, that, that never occurred to me. I'm just, I'm such a, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well. that was great. The virtual reality was great. Uh, the Dan Carlin hardcore history VR, terrifying, but it was awesome at the same time. So yeah, I'll be back actually to probably go through it again. I actually found these oversimplified videos on YouTube because I was trying to find out more information and they have like quick oversimplified animations about every war. So yeah, so like that Saturday morning, the next weekend I spent a couple hours watching those. <laughs> so you, you didn't want to read like a 500 page book on the battle of Verdun or anything like that? I need to work my way up to it. So I'm going to start with the cartoons and then I'll work my way, my way to watching um, or reading full on books about it. So let's get into this article that we'll be covering today. So we are going to be covering an article that was published in the New York Times by Peter S. Goodman and Aaron Schaff. It's entitled, It's Not Sustainable, What America's Port Crisis Looks Like Up Close. 
So the article is talking about a really serious predicament that we are seeing in the Savannah port right now, where they've been enduring a traffic jam amounting to nearly 80,000 shipping containers. This is one of many consequences of what the New York Times is calling the great supply chain disruption. Savannah is one of the one of the country's largest ports and like many other ports, both in our country and across the globe, they must contend with this massive cargo pileup with ships sometimes waiting at sea for nine days, unable to unload. The issue doesn't necessarily just end with ports either. Obviously, this connects with warehousing, trucking, rail systems on a global scale, and the supply chain is basically clogged, which is causing all kinds of ripple effects. What was expected to be a temporary phenomenon, an unintended consequence of the pandemic lockdowns is increasingly being viewed as a new reality that could require a substantial refashioning of the world shipping infrastructure. It sounds like you can't just turn off the world supply chain and turn it back on and expect it to work properly. <laughs> Control, <laughs> so, alt, delete. Yeah, yeah, you know, we we thought we could unplug it and then plug it back in, but unfortunately, that's not how it works. Um, and global commercial trade seems to be altered in this weird, permanent way, and probably in ways that we haven't fully detected. So, in the spirit of you know, talking about this as something you can unplug and plug back in or turn off and turn back on. It got me thinking about whether or not the global supply chain should be thought of as like a complicated system, like a machine, or if it truly is a complex system, or maybe it's a little bit of both. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and how you think, you know, maybe the complexity of economics in general may create feedback loops that eventually kind of fill in the gaps that we're seeing right now. So you read the New York Times article. I read the Washington Post one. There was two that we were banting back and forth on Slack. I find this whole thing just frustrating and the whole way we talk about it to be just maddening. Similar to the way we talk about traffic congestion, and I think everybody listening to Upzoned has a certain sense of the traffic congestion conundrum, right? We have congestion, we go and add more capacity, it alleviates congestion for perhaps a brief period of time at best, and then uh, people adapt to that and, and we get more congestion. And when we look at ports, you know, for some reason, we humans, well, not for some reasons, because our brains are wired this way. We tend to be very domain dependent in our expertise. And so a lot of you know people who are very thoughtful, who are listening to this, who understand all about induced demand when it comes to traffic, will look at the global supply chain, you know, quote unquote crisis, and they won't correlate it with the same kind of thing. For a long, long time, we had way more capacity than we had demand. And so you could do absurd things like manufacture a chip in one country, ship it over to another country where it was attached to some you know goofy part on a wash machine or something, uh, ship it over to a third country where it was put in you know a box and like whatever, and then basically ship it in 23 different ways before it gets to you, the person buying it. I, I did actually read once, and this was a while ago, and I actually would guess that the numbers increased since I read this. They said the typical thing that you eat, so the typical food product you buy 
that you cook, some like processed food or whatever, has gone through 23 different hands. It's been shipped 23 different places at 23 different times before it gets to your table. That is seen as optimal and efficient by the producers and the manufacturers because if I can get someone in uh, you know, Indonesia to manufacture this chip at, you know, five cents a chip instead of someone in South Bend to do it at 250 a chip, I can pay the shipping costs and come out way ahead. The challenge that you run into is that you ultimately, transportation becomes the constraint. And whether you're worried about global warming, whether you're worried about spread of, uh, of non-native invasive species throughout the, uh, the canals and the Great Lakes, or, I mean, we could go through this whole like litany of things that, you know, whether you're worried about union jobs in, in the U.S. and globalization, a lot of this is being fed by this massive capacity that we've created. And I don't know, to me, the, the, the problem is very simple to understand uh, in, in the same way that traffic congestion is simple to understand. Am I am I treating this too flippantly? <laughs> no, I, I think that's a really good point that it, it is about transportation. I mean, obviously, it's a congestion issue. And, you know, it's got me thinking about how manufacturing when it's much more localized is about kind of taking the resources that exist within a geography or at least, you know, maybe a, a broad geography and then taking those things and making something out of it. And at the global scale, we are taking materials from lots of different places or, you know, things are getting made, packaged, <laughs> you know, ready to, to sell. And it, while it seems like an efficient system in some ways because it expands our capabilities to, I guess, you know, create smart technology for everything and then package it and then get it into a target, <laughs> we trade that at the cost of resiliency, because when things don't work right, things really don't work right. And so I, I think it is important to think about alternatives to that. I, I feel like when, when you see articles like this, it's like kind of daunting because we're talking about the global supply chain and all of these complexities within a supply chain like this, all the different things that are made. And in some ways, you know, not to be flippant about this, but there's a lot of stuff that we don't need. Really? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. That I'm may shocked, come as, really. as a surprise to Americans. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that I'm not blowing the lid off of um, that. But yeah, there's a lot of crap that we do not need. And I always go back, sorry to Swiffer, but like the Swiffer wipes are the thing that just like enrage me personally because it's just something that you like throw in the trash and I just don't understand that. So there's so many little things like that that, you know, rely on these huge supply chains that, you know, I, I'm personally more concerned about food production and access to clean water, you know. The basics, like what are the things that you need to live and then make sure those systems are stable. And then we can worry about if I can get the couch that I ordered online in, you know, under six months. <laughs> Sounds like the answer is no, but that, that's not really like a life or death situation. So I, I feel like the while we talk about these broad systems and we talk about, oh, no, we're not going to be able to get stuff for Christmas, 
we can definitely get stuff for <laughs> for the holidays for people. It just may not be the crappy stuff that you used to be able to buy at Target. We could go to a farmer's market and get some something that was was handmade. So Jane Jacobs, amongst urbanists and planners, the book that she wrote, uh, The Life and Death of Great American Cities, is is seen as like their favorite. But my favorite is The Economy of Cities, which if you've not read, please get it. It is astounding. It is a mind-blowing book. In this book, she has one chapter, and it's basically a chapter about import replacement, which is one of the most modern economists vilify this concept more than any. They laugh at it. It's like the, it's, it's an anti-globalist strategy, basically. She talks about a city in Japan, and I can't remember which one it was. Um, it might be Kobe. I can't remember. But she talked about basically the evolution of industry there. And she starts with people riding bikes in this city and they would import the bikes and they would ride bikes. And then someone figured out that they could fix tires there. Like they didn't have to, you know, bring in tires. They could actually take old tires and repair them and fix them. And then they built up a competency for fixing tires in the city. And then someone realized that they could fix the chains. And so then they built up a competency for that. And then they realized that if they could source the chains and the tires locally. So they started to import the materials to like manufacture their own. And pretty soon they realized that they have all the manufacturing capacity to start manufacturing motor vehicles. And so pretty soon they lead up to being this like, you know, over generations, they become this great manufacturer of motor vehicles. And it was basically because they had these parts that they needed and they started to source them locally. They basically created their own internal supply to meet the internal demand. Economists today laugh at this. They, they find this to be primitive and backward and almost like antiquated in the way that, you know, you, you would look at like an outdated mode of thinking like, oh, this is how this is how those stupid bobos of the past used to think. But the reality is the opposite of that is okay, we, we want tires here. And so what do we do? We go to South America where they make tires and we get them shipped to uh, Indonesia where they're packaged in this way. And then it's shipped, you know, South Australia where something is done to it and then it's shipped back over here. And that is seen as like modern, globalized, connected, you know, all this stuff. Well, yeah, it is. It's really damn fragile too. And, you know, you wind up with when you get these uh, jolts to the system, you can think of a car on the roadway because this is exactly the dynamic that's going on right now. Imagine you're all driving along and a car just like slows down like dramatically or a line of cars like slows down and then they speed up and start going again, right? That first car that slowed down and sped up has got no congestion at all. But go back a mile or two and what happens is that everybody's smashing into the back of everybody else. You create this like massive mob of congestion. And if you're back there, you don't know what caused it. You don't know why it happened. And then when you keep going, all of a sudden traffic just starts flowing again and you get through. It's a bottleneck for, that created for like no good reason. That's exactly what's happened with the global supply chain. It's it's like a it's like someone slammed on the brakes and then you know it's everything's backed up and you're starting to go again. The opposite of this is an import replacement strategy. It is like us starting to do stuff for ourselves again. And I wrote down this number. It wasn't in the the Washington Post one, but I went and researched it. This last week, the trade deficit number was announced. Every month they announced the monthly trade deficit. So the trade deficit with in August was at an all-time record high, $73.3 billion, up 4.2% from the month before. The way we get out of this 
is, you know, basically this old school kind of economics of maybe we need to build some stuff here. Maybe we need to reduce the trade deficit. Maybe we actually shouldn't be importing so much stuff. And maybe what this is telling us is that, you know, the problem is not uh, transportation. The problem is something else. Let me make one last comment, which I think is a little bit meta, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. We're having this debate in this country about the role of the professional class and the elites and all these backward bobos who refuse to get the vaccine and refuse to wear masks. And, you know, we're having this like massive culture war. If, if you want to try to understand, if, if you are part of that professional class, which I think a, a lot of our audience is, if you want to try to understand the other group of people, recognize that you're reading here an article in the New York Times, an article in the Washington Post that is describing this problem, this massive problem of globalization, uh, supply chains, trade deficits and all this. It's describing it as a transportation problem not as an economy problem. It's not acknowledging the jobs loss, the, the low wages, the bad living conditions in Gary, Indiana, or you know all these places that used to manufacture stuff here. It's looking at this as a, a global supply chain problem. And the answer that the group of people in the New York Post and the, or the New York Times and the Washington Post are coming up with is, we need to spend a lot more money on the thing we know how to do in the professional class, which is build more transportation. Yeah. Expand the ports, build yes. more. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so so that we can all get a, get our crappy stuff shipped yes. here. <laughs> yes. And they'll wrap that all up in a nice bow and say, well, hey, that will create good jobs because we got to hire the bobos to come in and, and build the ports and drive the trucks and bring us all the gear, um, <laughs> you know, and work at, you know, Target and, and do whatever. I, I think completely missing the idea that what an economy should do to adjust to this is actually start building stuff here that we need. Yeah. So you're talking about a transportation metaphor as a way of describing this issue that we're seeing at a global scale. And it made me think about <laughs> when I was in college, I used to take these ceramics classes and I was really bad at ceramics. And, but I was always taking it, you know, trying to learn how to throw on a wheel and whenever I would be driving on a highway, it would make me think that it's very similar as the way clay operates. Because when you are throwing on a wheel, you are trying to, you're trying to get the clay to form in a way that is, you know, consistent and, you know, eventually is brought up to create a coffee mug, for example. And if there's one inconsistency in the way you are operating that clay with your hands, it just completely falls apart. So it always made me think, you know, of how traffic congestion and the way clay operates is similar in that way, because one little thing causes it to kind of go out of whack and not to move in a consistent flow. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the way that I see this ultimately is that, you know, like we often talk about problems have solutions, predicaments have outcomes. This is clearly a predicament because there isn't going to be some simple solution to snap everything back into place. You know, the New York Times might say, uh, we just need to build more space at the ports and we just need to expand capacity. I'm unconvinced that that's not the optimal way to address these kinds of issues because it doesn't fix the underlying problems 
that come along with globalizing the economy in the way that has been done. And I actually wonder if there could be a way to approach this that is focused more on kind of a fix it first economy, as well as a local manufacturing economy. And that's, you know, I'm always like the optimist, (laughs) I feel like in our conversations, but maybe you'll agree with me, you know, I'm quite interested in ways that people at the local level can think innovatively about filling these gaps um, and how, you know, where the global supply chain is unable to deliver and bounce back. I, I really believe that eventually somebody is going to step in to do something or, you know, there's going to be a way to kind of fill those gaps. You know, when you think of the history of the world, humans have gone through ebb and flows for you know, for forever. That's just the way things have always been. And so this isn't, I don't think, a forever kind of situation. There are ways that on a very micro level or community level that that people are going to react to having a lack of things that that were offered before. And, you know, to consumers, we may decide not to buy Swiffer wipes anymore because they're too expensive. <laughs> you know, there may just be certain certain things that we consumed before that become more expensive or become less available. And we opt for something that is more consistent and available. And that may be something that is manufactured more locally. I'm not a I'm not an expert in supply chains necessarily, but but I have to think that there are ways that that people will respond to when there is a demand for something. I mean, you can see right now, one of the ways people respond is to create surplus for themselves. So it's hard to get toilet paper again. People are buying toilet paper. They're buying it and saving it. They're stockpiling it. And you're like, well, that that's really weird. That's really strange. No, it's not. Because in societies where there is uh, instability, what people do is they create a buffer. This is like the core of Nassim Taleb's insights in Fooled by Randomness and the Black Swan in particular. The, the, the idea that you know we are provided this illusion that we can order something on Amazon and it will show up the next day and that that is somehow like a normal condition of things. And you know that is brought to us by the globalized supply chain the normalcy of human history suggests that that is a massive anomaly and that what you actually need is some buffer. So stores need inventory. They can't just be on demand inventory. That, that was the great thing of Walmart. Walmart utilized all this transportation capacity we build to create uh, on demand type of thing. So why have 90 days of inventory when you can get down to having just 72 hours of inventory. Then you have more capital to work with. You have less stuff to take care of. And all you need to do is just be really good at driving stuff around everywhere. Well, what used to happen is that stores would have large inventories because they did have supply chains that would take longer and were less reliable. We humans, you know, families would have more savings. Uh, we would have more things saved. So not just money savings, which we don't have anymore, but we would also have, you know, a couple of days of canned goods, uh, extra roll of toilet paper. We would have extra stuff sitting around because we weren't guaranteed even 30 years ago that you would always be able to get everything you wanted every time you needed delivered within one hour to your doorstep. 
Um, those are all actually things that we're freaking out about now, but are actually like really normal. And there's a, a way to respond to this that you can kind of see. I mean, in my small town, I think we're, we've, we've seen this for in small towns and in, in more distressed places, you've long seen it, which is people find ways to adapt and work around this stuff. There is a very active kind of market for fixing things here that like there isn't in the suburb of Minneapolis that my brother lives in. There are fix it, fix it men here, you know, the fix it guy. Uh, which you, you just don't have there, right? Your dishwasher goes bad, you get a new dishwasher. Your dishwasher goes bad here, you call the fix-it guy. It's a different, you know, it's a it's kind of a different thing. I look at this and I think that, um, well, you said there's no little, one thing that would fix this. I disagree. I actually, from a macro standpoint, think that if interest rates were to float, uh, in other words, not be artificially suppressed and you know, the cost of capital reflected the loss of, of, of purchasing power that our higher rates of inflation have given us. In other words, if, if you had interest rates, if we're going to have inflation at 4%, 5%, if you had interest rates at 7%, 8%, not only would it change the, the demand structure that is pushing on one way in that supply chain, but it would actually create incentives for alternatives at the local level that just don't exist today. That is a anti-consumer, pro-producer, or pro-worker kind of a shift. And it's one that would be really hard for our, you know, just in time, get stuff cheap, $73 billion a month trade deficit kind of consumer economy to transition to. But I actually think that transition is kind of inevitable. Interesting. Well, we'll leave it there then. You, what did you say? You're the more optimistic of the two of us? <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, uh, you know, maybe that could lead to optimistic outcomes uh, <laughs> eventually one day. Yeah. I don't think it would be bad. I do think it would be a, a, Hard. a, a painful transition. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It would be a painful transition. All right. Well, with that note, <laughs> it is time for the down zone which is the part of the show where we can share anything we've been up to these days, anything that we've been reading, watching, listening to. Uh, so Chuck, what have you been up to besides, of course, spending lots of time in Missouri? Yeah. I don't think I brought this one up yet. So every year I do this annual book list of the best books I read this year. And the number one book this year for me will be The Bible, because I've been doing this Bible in a Year podcast, this daily uh, go through and read the whole Bible. So I'm like, it's probably going to win because it's it's a pretty crazy book. But then I read this other book <laughs> and I'm I'm like, wow. And I bought copies for everybody on the team, including my board and had them shipped out. And I'm like, we are going to spend a lot of time talking about this. There's a book, uh, The Last Great Hope by George Packer. I don't know if I brought this up or not in, in any of our prior upzones, but wow, this is a fantastic book. And it's a fantastic book that describes basically the cultural divisions in America today. And, and I don't want to say divisions as much as perspectives, the, the different perspectives that people have. He comes at it, he's a very like left of center progressive thinker. So he has that lens to it, but I think he treats the entirety of the spectrum with a lot of respect in a sense, giving, you know, each perspective like it's due, which is they all have valuable contributions to the national dialogue, but they all have like tremendous blind spots as well. I found it to be 
a deeply illuminating book, particularly for the work that we're trying to do, which is really about working across difference and trying to understand uh, why our cities grow the way they do, why people react in certain ways, the, the humans in the human habitat. And I think he does the, the best job that I've seen in a long time of describing not only how we have dysfunction in talking to each other, but what we could actually do as individuals to try to move beyond that. So The Last Great Hope by George Packer. I highly recommend it. So you stole my down zone because you told me about this book last week. And you got it. (laughs) Yes, I did. Yeah. So yeah, I'm listening to it right now and learning about the four Americas. And I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I actually found an article on it. I think it's from the Atlantic. I think he wrote an article kind of summarizing the four different types. So um, if you're looking, you know, if somebody just wants to go read about those four different typologies, uh, you can Google George Packer, Last Best Hope for Americas. um, And you'll be able to see kind of the high level, you know, the way he's breaking down different schools of thought. And and in each of those, he breaks it down even further because, you know, recognizing there aren't just four type of people or ways of looking at things in the U.S. So yeah, I, I thought that it's an it's an incredibly important book considering people exceedingly, maybe, maybe less so these days, but seem to have been uninterested in seeing other people's perspectives or, you know, reaching to the other side. It, it, certainly politics at the national level is kind of, you know, out to lunch, <laughs> in my opinion. It's, it's, you know, I kind of think that individuals and communities need to be the adults in the room moving forward. So um, a book like this, I think, is helpful for kind of framing these things in a, in a generous way that doesn't, you know, that doesn't talk down about, about people. I think that that's really important. And I and I'm not surprised that you said the Bible was the favorite one because you'll have to answer <laughs> to the author. So yeah, yeah. There's there's a certain accountability there. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's the number two book of the year. Well, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a line in that Atlantic article at the towards the end where he lays out. You know, he's he's done laying out these four these four basically versions, stories of America that people are trying to create and, and want to live in. And he says, I don't want to live in any of these stories. You know, like the, all of them are, in a sense, they all of them add something beautiful to the discourse, but all of them have uh, blind spots that make them inoperable and in some ways very mean uh, in the discourse. And I feel like the thing that this helped me do is to, of the ones that maybe are not my native tongue, it helped me appreciate other people's perspective a lot more and also helped me, I think, recognize where some of my knee-jerk blind spots tend to be and respect the fact that, you know, if the world, as any of us as individuals would like to see it ordered, would be a very um, incomplete and nasty place without the balancing of, of other perspectives and other mindsets. Yeah, well, I mean, that allows the world to be an ever-evolving place, you know. I I don't yes. want to live in an America that's been predefined for me. <laughs> this is what this country is, you know, universally over an entire, you know, country or continent and this is the way it's going to be. I I think that it's a great thing to have kind of a more bottom-up way of of 
defining what it means to be American or be, you know, an American community. So I, I think that these different ways of framing it are are helpful. Yeah, agreed. You don't want to live in any of <laughs> any of the puritanical perspectives. I live in what he would call real America. Yeah. Um, surrounded by that. Every day when I leave and walk to work, I hang out my flag, my U.S. flag on the front steps. And uh, then I walk through, you know, all the uh, big pickup trucks trying to run me over on the way to work. Um, <laughs> you know, I live in this very weird, I'm a very weird person in a very, you know, different place. But my kids brush back on the, why do we put the flag out, dad? It's embarrassing. Why do we do this? I don't like it. You know, my friends come over and they're like, we got an American flag out front. <laughs> and, you know, they're young teenage kids. They're in the woke America in that book. And it helped me to like understand, you know, that they do have a point and they do have like something that they're grasping onto that should not be dismissed and should be listened to. Um, it just comes with, uh, you know, a certain meanness and myopia that also, you know, misses out on what my neighbors in real America are are dealing with and are, you know, why they put flags out on their porches. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope people well, read it. I yeah, hope people I read hope it with like an it. open, open hearts, you know, because I think it will real help us a lot. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the American Nations book in some ways where that book especially framed the way I understand different regions. It doesn't get into like kind of political perspective in the same way that this book does. Um, but it certainly kind of gets into like fundamentals of regional context. Right. Yeah. No, that's another uh, fantastic book. It's interesting though, because Last Great Hope, I think builds on the recognition that uh, these American nations have very much blended together over time. I mean, that's that's the thing that is, I was in North Dakota this week. I have to go because I have to go pick up my kids. I, I was in North <laughs> Dakota this week and uh, Tristan um, from Happy City was there and he's from Nova Scotia and he... Um, he talks and he talks without an accent and then we get to chatting and his accent comes in and you know, I'm in, I'm in North Dakota. I'm in North Dakota, you know, everyone's kind of lost their, their accent and their regional identity until you get them chatting and then it goes away. And it is interesting how I do think that more than Colin Woodward in the other book you mentioned. Oh, American nations. American yeah, nations. Yeah. yeah. This kind of captures where we're at right now, I, I don't think this book will be relevant, hopefully a decade from now. Like I hope it's a book that is relevant at this moment in time and that is not a decade from now. Um, but as a snapshot into where we're at right now today, it to me is just like a very urgent read. Hmm. All right, I'll let you go. Where Colin Woodward will be will be fascinating 50 years from now, right? Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks. I'll let you Thanks, go. Thanks, friend. Thank you. And thanks everyone for joining and listening to another episode of Upzone to keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you.